always good to be here at Waterford. I always enjoy my time, uh, and I've always enjoyed uh, getting to know many of you and, and um, relating to you. And that sort of leads to the question I have that I'd like you to ponder today is, is how are your relationships? Um, I talk with people quite a bit, and, and uh, usually it's, it's somewhat relational in nature, usually, and I, I try to zero in on that, and I'll ask them, hey, you know, who, who are the people who are, who are close to you, or who are the people that you, you really bond with? And I can't tell you the number of times that people look at me and stare back and say, I don't know if I've got anyone like that. Or a husband will, will save his wife, or a wife of her husband, uh, I, he, she just doesn't have any close friends, she doesn't have any close friends. Who are the people to whom you go when you need to talk, you need to process, someone to empathize with you? When I first began speaking here at Summit, I did a, a six-month stint uh, back in 2013, straight through five speaking times a weekend. It was, um, it was a lot of, of uh, change for me. It was, it was a, a difficult at times, scintillating at times, but I needed someone to process with. And I had a friend of mine named Jeff who lives in Tennessee that I did a once-a-week call with. And I said, okay, I need someone that, that is completely separate from this situation that I can just emote, complain, rejoice, do whatever I need to do. Someone who could speak truth into me, someone who would be honest with me. Uh, that's, that's what I needed at that time. Is there someone like that in your life? <laughs> I also remember years ago uh, when we lived in Massachusetts, we lived in a 70-year-old home, a wonderful home, it was, but it uh, needed some upgrades. And uh, we wanted to remodel our kitchen. I was convinced by a good friend of mine who was handy that I could do it myself with his help, which was I could do it with him doing it, not me, as I found out. Uh, but our house was so old, we didn't have normal plumbing. We had brass pipe plumbing, brass that you thread together all, all the ends of that brass as it connected all through the house, and it was ancient. And we tried to take some of that down so we could put, modernize it, and it just sort of crumbled in our hands. We didn't know what we were doing, and uh, the sh water shut off to the whole house, and it was 1030 at night, and uh, I, was, I thought, what am I going to do? We're going we're gonna to die of thirst here in our house. And uh, I, you know what I did? I sat on the top of my steps going down to my basement, got the phone out, and I called my dad, who lived in Florida. We were in Massachusetts. And, uh, you know, dad's going, you know, he was asleep, of course. And uh, well, what's wrong? I told him. Um, i sort of embarrassed to admit to you that I was in tears. And uh, he goes, it's going to be okay. Now, he couldn't help in any tangible way. I just needed someone who understood and who would stand with me. Relationships. The book we're going to look at just briefly this morning, Malachi, is a relational book. It's about relationships. It primarily talks about our relationship with God. Malachi communicates God's displeasure with the people in, in, in Israel at this time. Uh, and uh, let me show you exactly what time frame we're talking about. Uh, the, this uh, timeline, you get the sense of, of the, the, the uh, minor prophets that we've studied. Talk, we've talked about the northern kingdom of Israel that was 
captured by Assyria and, and really annihilated. They didn't return. The southern kingdom, uh, right around 600 uh, B.C., were, were with a series of invasions taken captive by Babylon. They, they, they were taken to that city and, and then finally began to return right around 538 B.C., uh, these, these Israelites were allowed from the, from the southern kingdom to return to Jerusalem. And around 536 B.C. to 516 B.C., they rebuilt the temple, the temple where they worshiped God. And uh, this book, Malachi, is the last chronological book in, in, the, in the Old Testament. It's the last of these prophets. And um, about 445 B.C., Nehemiah, we've got a book of the Bible talking about his story, a marvelous book on leadership and, and, and God's... God's intervention and protection of the people. He takes a, a uh, whole cadre back and, and he encourages the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and they do that. And right around this time, a few years later, around 530 BC, we've got our friend Malachi who, uh, who does the, the work of a prophet to the people of this time. And you get to see the, the dates there and, and the return and restoration happens right around 539 B.C. Through, five, through 333 B.C. So this book takes place somewhere in the 430s B.C. And this is the last word that the Israelites get from God before the coming of the Messiah. Interesting. Four centuries. And this is God's last communication with, with them directly through a prophet. The problem with, with these people, and it, it's, it's a fascinating story, the, the problem here is, is their worship, their giving, their, their marriages even, all were being compromised due to the selfishness and pride of the, of the people. Here's a people that have been miraculously liberated from captivity, can go back to their land. They're, they're now in the land. They, they've, they've established families, homes, they're prosperous again. They get to worship again. And yet somehow they have, they have in, in this, what we would consider a relatively short amount of time, lost their way. They've lost the, the, the heart of what God wanted them to go. Their relationship with God didn't go very deep. You read the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah uh, has this, this great celebration after the wall is built and the city is protected and the people are now in a better situation they're, and they're, they're thrilled with what's happened and, and they're called to, to corporate worship by the, by the priests and they read the word and the people repent. This is around 445, 444 B.C. And yet here just 10, 15 years later, there's something that's not quite that zealous anymore. The people repent. There's a revival in the land spiritually. Now all of a sudden... They become distracted. Just this morning, I found a quote. I get a lot of my quotes from Twitter. Sorry, I, you know, I'm not a great scholar, but this is, this is a good one. This C.S. Lewis quote. I get Twitters from C.S. Lewis. I don't know if that's from heaven or not, but someone sends them. He says, we are always, he, he writes this, we're always falling in love or quarreling, looking for jobs or fearing to lose them getting ill and recovering, following public affairs. If we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some, uh, some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. I thought that was a great quote. What's our work? 
It's not your job. Our work is to understand and embrace and fulfill God's purpose for our lives. I've got a lot of distractions, and I'm sure you do too. So in order to demonstrate the, the deplorable nature of this condition, Malachi zeroes into these three sensitive issues, their worship, their giving, and their, their marriages. And God, through the prophet Malachi, speaks to the barriers that have risen between the Jewish people and their God. So not only how important are your, uh, how are your relationships, but how, how important is your faith to you? really, your relationship with God. I was talking with someone recently who <clears throat> I asked him, hey, how's your, how's your spiritual life? How are you doing there? And he said, well, he says, God, I'm so busy and it's tough for me to find time where I can set aside for prayer and, and reading and, and, and reflection. And I understood. And we kept talking. And, and uh, he also told me in, in this very conversation, that, yeah, I get up 4.30 in the morning and I exercise every day. Number one, I'm impressed by that. Number two, I'm going, that's interesting you can get up 4.30 and exercise physically, but you have a difficult time taking that time for spiritual focus. I'm not trying to be judgmental because that's me too. It's probably you too in terms of the struggles that we have. We're distracted. I believe Malachi is a a 21st century call to, to men and women who take their faith seriously, who really want to look at, at ourselves realistically. And even if you don't necessarily have a strong faith, I think the principles and challenges that Malachi posits are relevant and challenging. So I want to read just three excerpts of Malachi, two I've included in your bulletin, and uh, the third one I'll, I'll read to you when we get to that. <clears throat> so I'm going to take these three issues. That, the first one is their purity of worship. I want you to look at Malachi Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, it's in your bulletin, or you open your Bibles to Malachi. It's relatively easy to find Malachi. It's just the book before Matthew. So you, you know your New Testament's book right before Matthew. Malachi 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord God Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? by offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would would he be pleased with you? Would he accept your use as the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord God Almighty. So what's this about? This is about their form of worship at the temple. They, would, they were called on to bring sacrifices uh, for several different purposes. And one of those purposes was a sacrifice, uh, the Day of Atonement, for, for the forgiveness of their sins. And they were called on, if able, to bring a perfect animal from their flocks. No deformities, no diseases. And you're going, well, what's the point of that? I, I, the point of that is that these animals needed to be pure because they weren't pure. There needed to be something pure to stand in their stead. And of course, it was a picture of the coming Messiah and his purity and his sin, sinlessness so he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. 
But the people here, you know, it's just like, oh, it's time to go worship. Oh, you know, let's go to the flock. You know, there's this, we got this not quite perfect animal here. What should we do? And that's, it'll be okay, right? And there, there's, this, there's this spinning. And you're saying, well, we don't do that anymore. How does this apply to me? And, and it's the application, I think, comes to the heart of this question. How's the purity of your worship? Do you come before God as you're able with, with a pure heart? How do you come to church today? Out of habit? Do you come coerced, begrudgingly, dutifully? Do you come joyfully? What does God expect? What, not only what does God expect, what should we expect of ourselves? I've worshipped at this church for 10 years now. I've been here 10 years. It doesn't seem that like that long, but it's been a decade and uh, I have seen a lot of, uh, of worship. I've, seen, I've met a lot of people. And I just want to brag a little bit about this church. And, and I do it unabashedly because I, I'm really glad to be a part of it. I find the worship at Summit, for me, is good because it's contemplative. It's not showy. It's done with excellence. And it's done from the heart. Every Every weekend that I, I speak or any speaker speaks, we're asked to, to go over our message. The songs are, are, are shaped around the theme of that message, and they are done, I think, with, with great excellence. And it's focusing on the majesty of God. So this is what we're, we're called to. And I, I would suggest that, that that would be a good template for our individual worship. Let's be thoughtful, focusing on God's majesty. Let's not be showy. Let's put energy and time into it, not as an afterthought or rushed in any way. Let's worship from the heart. It's interesting how I battle sometimes coming to church. I have to confess to you, I battle sometimes coming. You know, if I have a headache, I don't feel quite right. Interesting, though, if, if you want to play tennis with me and I agree to do it, I will come I'll come limping and lame with colds. I just love playing tennis, right? I just, I, I, there, you would have to, you'd have to really make me feel bad before I'd miss a tennis date. Do you feel that way about your worship? This is what Malachi is calling these, these people to. Have you forgotten who's the one who took you out of captivity? Who's the one who put you back here? I grew up in a home where we attended church. My, my folks were both Christians. I told you about my dad. He was a World War II veteran. He was a factory worker, skilled trade, but he worked in, in factories in northwest Ohio. We went to a church where um, uh, every Sunday we had communion in a separate service, and we called it the breaking of the bread. And that's uh, before Sunday school started, our Bible study hour, and then our main worship service. It was 9 a.m., and uh, we, they'd meet in a small room in our church, and uh, we'd, maybe 20, 30 people would gather. And uh, there wouldn't be any musical instruments there. We'd sing hymns. People would, would read scripture, and then we'd come to the end of that time, and, and we would pass the elements. The mornings that we went, we didn't go every day to that, every Sunday to that, but the mornings that we did, the Sundays that we did, I remember my dad saying and my mom reiterating that those were the days where we were not to act up as his children, me and my two younger brothers. 
He said, this is, this is a time where I want to go and focus on the Lord, and I just don't want to go distracted. And I remember hearing that and going, you know, there, there was just an instant respect for that because my father and mother took their worship seriously. I know what it's like with young children to come to church. It's just like, it's, it's a battle almost. It's a spiritual battle sometimes. It's like, you know, how do we, how do we corral everyone together? I used to, I, I didn't have any problem getting ready for church when my kids were young. Um, I got ready, but my wife had to get our two young children. I would, I would help by honking on the horn in the, in the driveway. You know, let's go. You know, that didn't work. How's your purity of worship? See, if you, if you focus on your purity of worship, it will help your relationship with God. Because we want that relationship when things don't go well. We want that. We want him to hear. So the modern-day message of Malachi is that we bring a pure heart and an attentive mind when we stand in the presence of Almighty God. Another issue he deals with is their, is their wealth. Uh, Malachi 3, uh, verses 6 through 12. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? And then God responds, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, God responds, you are under a curse and your whole nation because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, this is not a message of giving if you're starting to... to worry about that. I'm not going to talk about your giving, but this is a message about how we give. What's the attitude? What are your priorities? What is it that you believe about giving? How, if you do indeed give financially, do you give? Do you give joyfully, begrudgingly? How much? With what attitude? How often? For what purpose? Money is, is a... a uh, very, very sensitive issue. It's the, it's, it's the reason most couples fight in their marriage. It's, it's, if there's a financial issue in a family, there's many times a lot of conflict. So I know it's sensitive. I remember reading a book by Garrison Keillor. He was a uh, uh, prairie home companion on, on public radio. He, he was an excellent humorist and, and had all sorts of interesting things on his shows, a lot of, a lot of very folk and, and, and gospel music, and, and uh, it was a whimsical hour, and I read his biography and um, found that he was raised in a very uh, conservative and, and Christian home, um, went to church every Sunday, and fell away from his, the faith pretty dramatically when he got to his adult years. I don't know if that's changed now or not, but certainly not by the writing of the book. And I remember he, he wrote in this book about being raised by parents who every fall, they wrote, was raised on a farm. Minnesota. And his, his dad would go forward at their missions week at their church, and, and he would give 
uh, his offering for missions. And I remember Garrison Keillor mocking that and saying, you know, what was the purpose in that? Why would he even do that? But he was very clear about how much joy it gave his parents. This is the only place in Scripture, by the way, where God utters the words, test me in this. Interesting. It's the only place. Test me in this, he says. Certainly, God knew that one of the most difficult things for us to part with is our wealth. Jesus said it very clearly. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Can't do it. My parents uh, were faithful tithers. I, I knew that. They didn't brag about it, but I just knew it. I remember the year that they reached, not the tithe as a 10, 10%, it's the Jewish word for a tenth. That was, that was the, the uh, standard that, that was the people were encouraged to give a tenth of their wealth. My parents reached the 20% mark. They were pretty tickled by that uh, in later on in their years. My daughter, interestingly enough, I visited their apartment up in Chicago where they lived at the time. This was a few years ago. And I went into their kitchen, and on her, on her kitchen cupboard door in front of her, right over her sink, was this Malachi passage. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. There may be food in, in the house. Test me in this and see if I don't throw open the floodgates. Uh, my daughter and son-in-law were going through some really tough times financially. Uh, they were struggling. Uh, his business had not gone the direction he wanted to. He left here, had to, went to Chicago to, to uh, find work there. And they had some tough times. But I will tell you that my daughter and my son-in-law were committed to whatever they got in, a tenth of that would be given back. And I've seen how God, over the years, has returned that blessing to them. They haven't always had everything they've wanted, but they have every one of their needs met. And to this day, that's what she will do, and that's what he will do. Malachi is saying, what? here God has brought you back and given you this, and you are not, and now you're withholding. Like you think this is something you did or this is yours. He says, no, come, come back to the Lord. Because dealing with your worship will help your relationship with God, obviously, but dealing with your money the way God wants will help your relationship with him as well. Third thing that he mentions here, a um, subject that is, is certainly interesting, if not a bit controversial, is he deals with the whole topic of marriage. Malachi 2, 13 through 16. He says, another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because you, he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? Malachi responds, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does that, the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. That last verse, verse 16, this is the NIV translation. All the other translations and probably the straightforward Hebrew translation of the first sentence of that verse is, is just the statement, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. 
Now, I understand that uh, that's a sensitive topic, and I know that many of us ex have experienced that, either directly or indirectly, maybe all of us here, in terms of either family member or ourselves. Uh, my mom was divorced before she met my dad. I grew up in a home that was, that was blended as well. So this is not a uh, uh, guilt and respect comment at all. This is, this is just God's view of what marriage is. And God hates divorce, and I want to tell you something else that I found in my experience. You know who else hates divorce? People who have been divorced hate divorce. It's not ever pleasant. Malachi treats this subject head-on. It's a very sensitive topic. The Israelites were very cavalier when it came to their commitment the marriage relationships. Most egregious offenders were men. Uh, Moses had said, uh, because of the hardness of their heart, that if you're going to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce so she could take that and prove that she was released from this marriage covenant so she could remarry and be protected again. Women were not treated well in that culture uh, if they had no protection. And uh, that's, what, uh, that's what many of these men were doing. How we treat others is in direct correlation to how we relate to God. So God hates divorce, but what are we to do in adhering to what Scripture tells us versus the prevailing standards of our culture? Well, God calls us as believers to faithfulness in our relationships with our spouse. Scripturally, Jesus allowed for divorce in lieu of adultery. We know that. He taught that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, expanded that in his writings to include uh, desertion of an unbelieving spouse, that, that 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 spouse would be released from that marriage potentially, that they would have that opportunity if they chose it. And he opens the other instances in that. There are implied cases that open up. Physical abuse, of course, is, is something extreme emotional abuse and abuse of children. All those things are, are obviously part of our culture, and I'm not being judgmental about anyone who chooses to go in that direction. But the whole focus of, hey, this isn't working for me, or I'm not really pleased, or I'm not really happy, that perspective is clearly confronted by Malachi. A friend of mine who's going through a very difficult time in his marriage, he's been struggling and, and there's been some unfaithfulness and, and uh, he's just been in agony about how he's going to process and how it's going to heal and what he's going to do and should he even stay in the marriage. He was sharing some of his struggles with me and then shared with me a uh, communication by uh, the wife of a, of a dear friend of his. And she sent him some things for him to, to ponder as he considers the direction of his marriage. And um, he's given me permission to read this. I thought this was better than I could even say. Anything I could say would pale by comparison to this. This is what she writes her friend. How easy to use comfort over calling and to doubt self-sacrifice in light of the fun people ha have serving their own appetites. You're asking questions you already know the answer to, but you are desperately wanting a different answer. You want it out of his marriage. However, if you get the different answer, the divorce, you're not realistically looking at the ramifications at how that will fully play out for you and for your children. 
There will still be a trial. It will still be hard, and it won't magically be 100% better. My prayer for you is that you won't give up on the marriage and will give up or surrender to God and ask Him what, you're to learn, what you are to learn in this process. And where is it that you have failed? I still just keep thinking about where I finally was when I got pregnant. It took three years to submit fully to God, to lay it all down and surrender the outcome to Him, to let go of how I wanted it to look and to be willing to be humbled and transformed by Him and changed to be more like Him. I think then and only then God changed my circumstances. And then she writes, As long as you focus on your spouse and what she's not doing right, then we can fully blame her for the broken marriage because we're only waiting for, on her to change. She holds the keys, and we're at all, all at her mercy. But if the focus shifts to God and my standing before Him, and whether I have any faults, I need to confess, the situation changes. I'm not at her mercy, whether she changes or not. I'm in the hands of the living God who knows me inside and out and knows my motives even when I'm unaware of them myself. Above all, the heart is deceitful. Only after I admit my failings am I in a state of humility where God can transform me and my life. She concludes this way, changing your focus from your spouse to your sanctification in Christ is very empowering. Now you have something you can work on and change. You can pursue Christ and draw closer to him and be transformed by him regardless of what your spouse is doing. She quotes Psalm 139, 23, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Praying you won't give up until you get the benefit of the trial transformation. Worship, giving, marriage. God continually calls you and me back to a close relationship with him, but there is a response that he asks from us. He asks worship from a pure heart. He asks us to give with a joy, realizing that he's the one who's provided all that we have. And he asks us, whether we're married or not, whether, whether we're in, in a relationship, in a marriage relationship or not, to treat the people around us in such a manner that we are the ones who are continually looking to say, what can I do to improve? What can I do to bring healing and joy and growth to this relationship? Malachi is a relational book. How are your relationships? Relationship with God, with your money, those who are married with, with your spouse. This is a call to you and me to walk in a way continually where we won't forget who the one is who gave us our very life and gave us the things that we enjoy in this life. And we give him praise for it by how we respond and our attitudes toward the Lord and what he's given us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the challenges in it. Thank you for the straightforward nature that, that Malachi speaks, not just to the people here, but to us down through the centuries and millennia since. 
And I pray, Lord, for myself and each man and woman here that wherever our hearts are now, that we would assess them and that we would ask that you would draw them closer to you. I pray for myself and every person here that you would allow us to experience a purity in our walk with you, not distracted, not self-focused. Pray that you give us good attitudes about our wealth and our relationships, our marriages, and those that are close to us. I pray, Lord, as we do these things, that we will not just enjoy a life that's more full, but we would enjoy a deeper and more abiding and more loving relationship with you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.